If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. It's time to get lost and rewound. I get to say that every week. Let's try that again. Happy Halloween. I am Alon, coming at you from the lair once again for yet another episode of Lost and Rewound, the show where we release previously uncovered sounds from the ever-feared yesteryears. After all, what could be more frightening than vulnerability? Should you have any old recordings, dusty MP3s, or even any home movies, email lostandrewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org. We're waiting for you. And now, as I am joined once again by my spooky accomplice, Rachel Teichman, we present, we to, present you to you this, this week's, week's special, special guest. guest. guest is Caitlin Bailey. She is a stand-up comic, an essayist, a storyteller, and she is the communications director for Decriminalize Sex Work. Caitlin came out as a sex worker in 2013, and her one-woman show documenting her experiences called Contagious followed in 2015 with wildly successful runs at the United Solo Theater Festival and the New York International Fringe Festival. She currently has a podcast about sex workers throughout history called The Oldest Profession, and she is developing a new one-woman show called Whore's Eye View. It is my honor to welcome to Lost and Rewound the one and only Caitlin Bailey. Thank you so much for having me. It's so, it's so funny listening to you uh, read that bio because it's now I am now quitting my job at Decriminalized Sex Work. My, is my that last so? day is this really? Friday. Yeah, I've been there for two years. I am leaving to start my own company. So I've started Old Pro Productions. So we tell better sex worker stories. We're starting with the Oldest Profession podcast and 
We hope to produce runs of Horse Eye View and maybe revitalize Contagious. And also we aspire to like make full length documentaries and uh, capture and elevate the sex worker rights movement like as it's happening now. You would have never probably thought that you could get yourself elevated to that moment were you not involved (laughs) so heavily in it already with this particular organization. Yes, that's true. Were you approached to be in this organization after your show and that's how it came about? Kind of, yes. I came out as a sex worker first as my, in my capacity as a stand-up comic. And so th- then I started like traveling around and doing shows and stuff. And I also started going to sex worker rights like conferences um, and meeting, you know, the players of like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm out as a sex worker. Maybe, maybe you want to book me for your conferences. Uh, and that's sort of how I got the, the bug of, of sex worker activism. And I, I produced the show and the sex worker rights community was absolutely a huge part of the first run of Contagious. I read my play at the Desiree conference in New Orleans and, you know, had a lot of great folks show up, but it was me being at the sex worker rights conference that connected me to the people that eventually became decriminalized sex work. But like, Yes, I would not have met those people and they would not have recruited me the way that they did had I not been chasing uh, sex worker friendly stage time. You said that you came out as a sex worker through your comedy. Uh, can you recall the show that you did when you finally bit the, uh, I don't know if the, what the right term would be. You, you just, you, you jump, went down the cliff and just said, let's do this. Sure. I mean, yeah, I remember it was a mixed open mic and I can't remember if it was at Lucky Jack's or Cafe Vivaldi or the the Vagabond Cafe, but like one of those coffee house, music, spoken word, comedy meets poetry spaces. And I had recently connected and gotten a shot of courage from Aaron Burke, who was also out as a former sex worker and had written a one man show himself. So we were traveling in similar circles at that point. Um, and he encouraged me to tell my story um, unapologetically and in fits and starts if I had to. And that's what, that's what got me started. I'm just blown away. I mean, it's so wonderful that you could be, you know, just being on the circuit and then you find somebody throughout your travels that is doing something similar to what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And that gives you the confidence to share your truth. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's how artist circles, musician circles, any field, you know, whether it's paint or sculpture or stand up, I feel like you are so informed by the tribe that you travel with, right? Like that's why people come to New York, right? Like to be around people that are doing their craft at the highest levels. And so, yeah, I was absolutely influenced by the people that I was surrounded by who were uh, championing courage, you know, championing unvarnished truth-telling, championing boundary-pushing as a part of the ethos of stand-up. You've been in a lot of circles uh, and you've had a lot of different jobs in your time um, since moving. Oh, sir, sorry, I just realized something. Are you are you from New York originally? Where are you from originally? No, I come from a military family. So yeah, I, we moved, moved every, around. Yeah, all. Yeah, we moved every two years for the first 10. Uh, my parents eventually settled in North Carolina where they still live and where I am recording from. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then I, I went to the College of Charleston in South Carolina and then started running campaigns, which is like just nonstop, endless travel. Uh, and then eventually wound back up. New York has been my first like forever home as an Sure. Adult. Yeah. 
And I was going to say, like, you know, between high school and now, I mean, I imagine, like, all the different jobs that you've had. I'm uh, nothing bad of- at most of them. <laughs> I've been, I've been <laughs> fired from so many jobs. I'm a terrible waitress, a worse yeah. busboy. I'm just, Same like, here. Waitress. I'm worst. a terrible waitress myself. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, Gender that, that, roles. Hey, no, I never will be involved in food service again. I was only involved in it for such a short period of time that I knew that, you know, because I think what it is, is is that there's so many people who have been doing it for so long Mm -hmm. and there becomes this point where you realize there's no way I'm ever going to reach a point where people are going to look to me for advice. I'm going to always be asking people for advice and I'm just, I, I, I don't belong here. Like, I don't know. I I feel like food service, bartending, you know, waiting tables, whatever, it's a craft too. And just like they're like the best of the best of, you know, audio engineers and stand-up comics and musicians in New York, they're also like the best of the best waiters. And if you don't want to make it a career, if it's not your craft, like you are and you should be pushed out of the way. New York is not a place where you can give things your like half self to. I, I never found any success with day jobs in New York. My half presence was like not enough to do the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, I I have found personally a striking resemblance between sex work and food service. Do you agree? Disagree? Uh, I mean, I was I was better able to enforce my personal boundaries in sex work than I ever was at restaurants. I felt much yeah. more disempowered as a waiter over much smaller amounts of money than Mm -hmm. the like control that I felt as a sex worker. But that was a problem of management, right? Like sex work, I didn't have a boss, but I conceived of my role in the restaurant as being an ambassador between two hostile countries of like the kitchen and the customers. And so like, I, right. But like, but, but I like, there was, I gave no fucks what like management thought about that right so it's like I was there to serve the customers and interpret directions from the kitchen because they literally don't speak the same language but like if someone wanted free butter they were getting free butter and if someone was trying to crack down on that then we weren't on the same side when you moved to New York were you intentionally seeking out some performative uh, means of yeah. uh, you know are I, you okay I moved sure yeah, absolutely I, well I moved to New York twice right so I moved to New York first to do political campaigns and I was like here for less than six months before getting transferred to Indiana when was and, that and that was 2009 2010 okay. uh so like political campaign stuff and then I came back to do comedy and I think that was I had a mission And so, you know, if I needed to leave a restaurant shift early to make it to an audition, that audition was just a thousand times more important to me than my standing with the scheduling shift manager at whatever restaurant I was working at. So like, I walked out of a lot of jobs with a like, I didn't move here to be a waitress kind of attitude. You know, my father being a soldier and being the person that he is communicated to me very, very early in life. There's no such thing as more than one number one priority. So the first decade that I was in New York, I made comedy my number one priority and I didn't let anything, jobs, relationships, apartments, get in the way of my single-minded pursuit of stage time. Is it true that you were doing even uh, an open mic oh, down in Park Slope? Because I feel like that's when I met you originally, was at Bar 4. And I sense yeah. that maybe that's why you were there, was <laughs> to do the open mic there. Yes, I was doing, I was, I've, yes, I've done 
I, guilty as charged. I've done the open <laughs> mic at bar four. I've run the way back in the day when it was even yeah. bar four. It's not, I ran, not in bar four anymore. <laughs> I ran an after hours open mic that went until 6 a.m. on Saturday. Say what? Yeah. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I convinced the owner to give me the keys. Oh my God. They knew they couldn't play music because it was too loud, but they could do spoken word. And so if yeah. I locked up and left the place, okay. <laughs> then we could talk into that fucking microphone as long as we goddamn wanted to. <laughs> How did your five roommates sorry, feel? Is, I didn't even ask. <laughs> yeah, definitely part of the impetus for running the mic that late was that I just never wanted to go home. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. and that, that was part of the, like, no compromises, single-minded pursuit, right? It's like, I didn't have time to, like, find a comfortable place to live or a sustainable living situation. I was just, like, hopping from one non-sustainable catastrophe to the next doing this chaos. I don't know. There's a lot of creative good that comes out of that. You know, I think it's an important space. I don't think it's necessarily sustainable. It's not something that I advocate of like, you must live in chaos to make good art. Like I'm not an insane person, but I think there is a push comes to shove moment that must happen where you like choose the art over your physical or psychological comfort. The clip that we're going to be listening to in a little bit uh, from you doing stand-up in Cincinnati, I mean, you're very, very upfront and honest, but there was only so much that you were sharing before there's other things that you're not sharing. Um, how important was it for you at first to try to put everything on the table in your, in your comedy? I, it, it's always been and continues to be way more important for me to be honest and open and vulnerable with the audience in front of me. I, I, I tell the story of like, coming out as a sex worker is like I wrote I wrote contagious right um and that entire play is about coming out to my father but I didn't actually come out to my dad I just wrote I just wrote a one-woman show about it and then performed <laughs> it and promoted it and produced it all over New York City and because my parents also have the internet then that conversation was like was forced Right. Yeah. So like, my, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. my mom, like, yeah, like my mom called me up. I was like, I can't believe you sold your body. And I was like, I didn't, I still have it. But like, we didn't get like deeper than that. And me and my dad had this like weird, confusing, circular, like sort of like drunk person conversation where he's like, I'm proud of you no matter what. And a, a child is an arrow that you let go and you don't know where they land. And every child disappoints their parents or blah, 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 blah. And so then I wrote a Vice article about coming out to my father. I was like, all right, I wrote, I wrote the play and that was, that was bullshit. So I'll write this Vice article about coming out to my dad. And we published that Vice article. And then I got another phone call from my father that was like, I cannot believe that you were a literal prostitute. I thought that this was about an abortion. And I was like, no, 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 everyone's had an abortion. What? No, no, I'm, I, don't, I have no fucks about that that's fine so i came out to my father creatively twice and in real life i don't know maybe <laughs> half a time like we're still not we're still kind of in a don't ask don't ask. i mean the job that i have it like forces my parents it's like i'm the director of communications for decriminalized sex work right like which is like the national advocacy organization like i'm standing up being like i'm leading an army of horrors for freedom and so like whenever we talk about anything professional we have to engage with the subject. But like the truth is my parents would much rather ask my husband about his job. I feel like I'm looking into my future 10 years from now. And um... that you, your parents are not the audience you're trying to build. And like, absolutely not. You're going to do good. If you're gonna, and like, sure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a performer. I'm a provocateur. Right. And yeah. so, like, disappointing my parents was, like, step number one. And yeah, I'm yes. increasingly comfortable with it. 
Yeah. You know, but like, but also I'm an only child, right? So like, I do not give them many options. Like they can either get yeah. on board with my whore choices or be alone for Christmas. Like that's, that's just what is. Yep. We're going to listen uh, to one of a couple of clips from a stand-up set that you had. This is pre-coming out as a sex worker. Yeah, this is when I'm still trying to make it as a club comic. And I am featuring, I think, during the set. Yeah, I was a creepy kid growing up. I, in the third grade, I used to carry around a book of death poetry. Uh, that's poetry about death. Uh, did not have a lot to add to the subject at that age, but I carried it around anyway. And I remember this other third grader, she asked me a third grade conversation. She said, hey, Caitlin, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is pizza. And I said, poetry because it feeds my soul. <laughs> What do you mean I can't come to your slumber party? I'm a delight. <laughs> I was an only child, obviously. Yeah, you don't get that way without growing up in a cocoon of unconditional love. I remember by the time I got to middle school, I used to wear like long peasant skirts and I had hair down in my butt, black lipstick, 7 a.m., great look, right? And I, I'd come home and I'd say, the kids are teasing me, they're calling me a witch, meh. <laughs> An older sibling may have suggested, stop wearing a witch costume to school every day. <laughs> My parents just reassured me that I was obviously smarter than everyone, which is not how you solve that problem. That's not, <laughs> it's not great. I, my, my mom's a huge feminist, so she raised me with like, girls can do anything that boys can do. That's science. Uh, and my dad, not a feminist, but a huge fan of me. So he raised me with like, you can do anything that you want to do, but because you're a girl, you obviously don't have to do anything. <laughs> they created a monster. Being an only child, daddy's yep. a little girl. And I suppose the other thing that really stood out with me in that clip was uh, being called a witch. What were you listening Alanis to back Morissette. then? Music yeah, wise. Of Alanis Music-wise. Music-wise. We're just... I I swear <laughs> to God, Alanis Morissette Dad, has been... You said the magic <sighs> words. <laughs> if there is one artist who has made the appearance mentioned as like the go-to for all guests of of a certain generation, people that it's always been Atlantis, the witch when I'm, they were twelve. Is that the gender? Is that or or if you're a lawn? I mean, yeah. Look, I mean, I may, maybe I was a witch. Maybe. I just didn't know it. What was your first concert? Okay, did you? We have to talk uh, about this yeah, because talk I don't it. like concerts. It's not okay. my jam. I like theater. I like words. I like stand-up. I'll see the vagina monologues yeah. again. I'm never going to get tired of that. But the first concert I ever went to, I was 12 years old. My mom's friend's daughter, who was also my age, but nothing like me. And we went to see the Backstreet Boys. And no way. We did at the Raleigh whatever. And we left at halftime or whatever because it was too sexy for my christian girlfriend and her no i uh, did you cry i mean I, I i we were out in the field somewhere and i was and, and miss sandbrick was like this is too provocative and i was like you have no idea that's awesome and literally <laughs> like, awesome is, um i was like this is some pretty basic bitch shit miss sandbrick was like it's too much for us <laughs> now, oh my god so, so like, I want to know, <sighs> why comedy? Comedy happened to me. I'm a lust-driven person. 
if it turns me on, I'm going to follow it. I'm like, I'm just one of those, like, I'm going to get in the car and drive four hours one way to get, you know, clit wet or whatever. Like I'm, I'm one of those. And, mm-hmm. and so when I was in college, I had a bunch of 10 minute plays in like Piccolo's Volito Theater Festival. And also there was a stand-up comedy troupe that was visiting. And I was in there rehearsing my play and the headliner came in to like check out the theater, but like I had reserved the space. So he wasn't allowed to be in there. And I explained that to him, that he was like a headliner and I was a student and he tried to explain that to me. Uh, And then we ended up fucking. And so I ended up seeing him perform stand-up comedy like nine times over the course of the short period of time that we were having this like physical relationship. And after like the third or fourth time that you watch somebody deliver the same jokes, you're like, oh, this isn't a magic trick. This is just a stump speech with jokes. So it sort of broke down that inaccessibility. And when I burned out on the campaign trail a couple of years later, I don't know, I found like stand-up comedy seemed like the purest, most accessible, immediate, everything that I was looking for in theater was there for me better and purer and more concentrated and more in my wheelhouse in stand-up than in any other performing art form. And I think that is still true. It's words that come out of your mouth into a microphone and that's it. I was just really, really drawn to that. I did, for full disclosure, uh, listen Mm -hmm. and watch the whole entire clip. It seems like you really were onto something with the um, ability to really use this medium uh, to your advantage because you really command a crowd really well. I mean, you called attention to a group of women who were there for a birthday party Mm -hmm. and you just torpedoed right into them and they were not expecting it and you had the entire crowd on your side because they were just ridiculous. Thank you. (laughs) So Yeah, yeah, uh, they were being mad disrespectful. They were more about their birthday party and they should have gone to Applebee's. That's not what this is for. The craft of stand-up is making it an us versus that asshole instead of me versus y'all. That's the chops, I think, of stand-up. Man, my parents did the best they could. Uh, My mom is this uh, ex-hippie, pot-smoking, liberal Democrat who's like, favorite thing to do is go to gay pride parades and ask strangers for dick pics. That's her favorite thing. (laughs) It's the best vacay ever. (laughs) My father, on the other hand, ex-military Rush Limbaugh conservative, who's always been like equally uncomfortable around the homosexuals and the vegetarians. (laughs) Right, like his lifelong aversion to hummus was finally explained after I overheard him describe it as a lubricant that the gays use. And no wonder you can never find that shit in the grocery store, Dad, it's not where you think it is. A whole different aisle. (laughs) My mother, she hosts a lot of Democratic fundraisers at our house, and after 30 years of marriage, my father is not invited. (laughs) Instead, he sits out front and writes down the license plate numbers of all the communists that live in the neighborhood. fun stuff. They were riding around in the truck the other day, um, and my dad doesn't wear his seatbelt because that's what freedom is to him. <laughs> and we, right? Yeah, it's America. Except that he drives one of those cars that like beeps at him to tell him that that is not okay. But he was in Vietnam for a long time, so he can't hear that. <laughs> but my mom can. So they're riding around, and after like, I don't know, eight seconds, my mom is like, Joe, if you put your seatbelt on, I'm gonna start fucking with your blood pressure medication again. <laughs> And my father said, I own this truck. 
I'm not gonna let it, you, or the liberal media tell me how to live my life. <laughs> They're great. My father, my father used to court-martial people for smoking pot uh, in Vietnam. That's a thing, the thing that's true about my father. My mother has smoked pot every day since she was 14. <laughs> my dad found out about that four months ago. <laughs> right? That's, here's my favorite part about that story. The same day that my dad found out my mom was just going to continue to smoke pot like whenever she wants to, uh, my dad found out he's still not allowed to bring soda into the house. <laughs> right? <coughs> yeah. Process that for a second. So I was sitting at home on the couch and my dad was doing my laundry because I have a college degree and that was our deal. <laughs> Walks over to me, hands me 10 bucks. He goes, hey, Caitlin, uh, when you go out later, would you mind picking up some Dr. Pepper and just putting it under the wheelbarrow in the garage, please. And I said, Dad, you're a former Green Beret. Do you need me for this operation? And my father said, well, if your mama finds out and gets mad, you can leave. So the secret behind my parents' 30-year marriage is that my father thinks he's in a POW camp. <laughs> Do not recommend it. Did your parents ever watch you do stand-up? Uh, my father has never seen me perform stand-up, and he made that decision very early in my career, and I still, to this day, interpret it as one of immense uh, respect, where hmm. he was like, I understand that you are telling stories that I might not be able to process, so rather than asking you in any way not to tell those stories or not to go in that direction, I am removing myself as a factor. Uh, like, he came to every school recital, he came to every school play that I was in and recognized that I was going in a direction as a performer that, like, as a father, he couldn't follow. And I asked my mother to stop coming to shows after she made faces uh, at a sold-out show in D.C. that I didn't like, and I realized I couldn't handle it. She brought her girlfriend to my sold-out show. This was when we were still with the Pink Collar Comedy Tour. This was, like, our first run. Um, and she came up and visited a girlfriend in D.C., and she just, like, you know... It was a sold out show. She didn't have tickets. Like, you know, like we had to like, it was a thing and taking a lot of attention. And then I was up there doing, you know, I'd been doing comedy at that point for like, I don't know, maybe three years, four years, like not long enough to really have my stage legs yet. And I was telling some sex stuff, which is the brand that I'd been developing. And my mom was just there in the audience with like her hands between her head. Like I was just like actively tarring and feathering her. And I was like, you don't have to do this. In fact, you're not even allowed. So I, I banned her from my shows. Moms are always the last yep. one. Yep. Every yep. single time. Like, they know it hurts. They yep. know it is hurting them. And yet, there's just this maternal instinct that tells them to keep showing up. And then finally, <laughs> one day, they're like, I get it now. I get it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like, I think my parents are allowed to come to shows that I can't see them in. So when I start performing for houses yeah. that are big enough that I don't have to make eye contact with every single human being, then they can come and see me and we will negotiate that later. See, but, that's the, that's yeah. the uh, beauty of being a performer. If you could be <laughs> in a room where you're not seeing any faces, it's the best. Like, you made uh, it. <laughs> I, oh, see, I, mean, I just look at the wall. I just look at the wall on the other side of the room and I- how. What, if there's a light shining in your face? I mean, I can't see anybody anyway because the light is just protruding into my soul. The secret personally. is you just 
look far into the distance and you don't even think about the light. You just. Nah, I try, I try, I love making eye contact with strangers, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's intimacy that I avoid, right? I can't, it's, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a relationship and my parents' problem. I love antagonizing an audience, getting in there, asking personal questions. But like, if I can see my mom making faces, then I just immediately transform into the like brattiest version of my 12 year old self. It's just snot bubble tears immediately and like no context, no um, sense of scale. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that, uh, you know, you paint your mother in this set as someone who is a little more hippy dippy than your father, who's a lot more conservative having served in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have to ask, how did they meet? They met in Germany because my father was stationed there and my mother was selling insurance. She works in sales. And so she was like selling insurance to all of the Americans that were stationed in Germany. And my father went through a divorce. I actually, I love the story of my parents' courtship. I think they're very cute together. But like my mom was 26 and my dad was 34, 35. And he'd been to two or three wars at that point, you know? And so to my father, my mom was just like this kid in sales. And so he was going through a divorce. He'd gotten married at 17 and they were married for 17 years and it didn't last. So they were going through the process of doing that. So my father made my mother a deal where he said, if you come over and insurance paperwork, I'll make you dinner. And so I don't know if they drank that night or like what led up to it. But at some point in the evening, my said to my almost divorced father, you know, Joe, I never understood why you never asked me out. And my dad said, well, Donna, you see, I was married the first time I met you. So I've never thought of you as a woman before. I just thought of you as the insurance lady. And that's their first date. It's really <laughs> sweet. I mean, that's love at first sight. Right. Isn't that just the best? Yeah. 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 Nailed it. Yeah. They were, in, they were married like six months later. That's they had wow. very, very fast. Yeah. There's more to come. This is Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. (laughs) Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. The show Contagious, spelled C-U-N-T-Agus. First of yeah, all, yeah, a brilliant... Cunt, a, like, cunt. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, like, and, and I, have, I have a fantasy of, like, getting to late night or whatever and then, like, talking about my early career and just assuring some, like, anxious, like, big-time person of, like, just pronounce it like I used an O. It's yeah, close enough, it, right? It's, it's not. It's, it, it's not like uh, like uh, the levees uh, with uh, Shit's Creek. They, you know, nobody right. can say it outside of late night television. On it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's very amusing. Um, so you developed this show after you uh, were brave enough to come out. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about how that came about? I think maybe you probably talked about it a little bit or alluded to it. You said that you came out. Uh, you started doing sex work before you even left high school at seventeen. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So I was doing sex work in high school. And at the time that I was doing it, I understood it to be something that I would have to take to my grave. Right? Like I understood it to be existing on the level of like, I'm going to have to keep this secret forever. Uh, And it wasn't until 
coming out of my first like truly abusive, like physically abusive relationship that I made the decision that I was never going to be vulnerable in this way again. That like having this kind of secret or having a secret of this magnitude made me vulnerable in a way that I could no longer live with. So coming out as a sex worker felt like this act of self-preservation, that in coming out and standing in my truth and being like, I, I am a person that has had sex for money. I am a whore. I would then attract people that I could share that secret with, that could hold that for me, rather than being surrounded by people that I was confident that as soon as they found out, they would abandon me, which was like the big fear with my family, with my friends, with my professional circle, that like I would be abandoned and deemed unlovable if this horrible truth were revealed. This is from your show, Contagious. And yeah, uh, is there a setup maybe, uh, something for us to- I just, uh, I just want you to know that I know that a one-woman show is very different from stand-up comedy. So I feel mm-hmm. like we've heard enough of me performing stand-up comedy to be like, that is an art that I could do. And this is not that. And that's the only preamble that I want to give to Contagious. Okay. Which was written and performed as a play. My first week in New York, I'm at a bar playing Castle Bandits. I was always at bars because when you share a studio apartment with a crabby lesbian, you can't go home <laughs> at the end of the night and read or watch TV or turn a light on. So I would sit at bars until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning until I was tired enough after performing to pass out. So I'm doing something simple that I'm good at so I don't have to think about how scary it is moving to New York to become a stand-up comic without anything resembling a backup plan really is. I was looking for a solution, someone to rescue me, a hero. I met this man. Hi, bartender. Yeah, we need another pint. Do you know her? Huh. Sweet girl with her face lit up by a screen. She looks like a woman from my dreams, eh? Feed her last dollars into a game like a child. His name was Connor. He had an Irish accent, and he was brilliant. We had the kind of sexual chemistry that makes war make sense, that looks like a drug addiction, that makes a man believe in witchcraft. It was a love story. Any love story, all the love stories. I wanted so badly to be the kind of girl that could cast herself in a love story, but I'm not. I could vomit. And the first night we spent together, I did. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but this was the man that I'd been waiting for to punish me viciously for crimes against my father. Men open doors for women out of respect. Women have babies, and that's pretty special. So out of respect for our mothers and the mothers of our children, the least we can do is open a damn door. When a man loves you, he wants to protect you. You can't help it. It's instant. you close your blinds. When I came home last night, there were three boys sitting outside the house. They wouldn't have been there if there wasn't something to see. I don't feel comfortable with you walking alone at night. Call me when you get there, just so I can relax. For me, babe, check in. I don't feel safe and you don't answer the phone. That's it. So simple. How hard is it to make one damn phone call? I don't care how late it is. Don't you understand? I can't relax until I've heard from you. I'm up late at night. I can't sleep. I'm pacing, driving my mates mad. I'm your father. It's my responsibility to protect you. There are bad people in this world. You don't know how men think. Men and women can't be friends. Do you think any of these men are your friend? 
You don't think all of them would jump at the opportunity to fuck your brains out when you call them friends. Connor, stop. There's something I have to tell you. I worked as a call girl when I was in high school. If you could say something cool that reverberates in my head for a few days, it's significant, significantly amplified by the aroused state in which it was received that deep point. Kayla, if anyone ever hurts or uh, rapes, I mean rape rapes you. None of this, I went back to his place, we had a couple of drinks, and he would call the next day, shit. If anyone ever hurts you, I'll kill him. When I met Connor, it had been seven years since my last appointment. Well, kind of. <laughs> it's been over a decade since I was paid by the hour. I was never paid by the act, not that it matters. I mean, I was never a streetwalker, but I definitely had sex with men I met at bars in their car, so it's all shades of gray. <laughs> For months, no, years afterwards, I would find myself sometimes drunk, sometimes sober, walking past his apartment, trying to see past the fire escape and into that studio apartment where he picked me up and threw me up against a wall, choked me until I passed out, and called me a fucking whore. Thinking about it still makes me wet. I don't know what that means. I still hear him when I'm relaxed. No woman can stay whole as a prostitute, and no woman gets whole in later. It's insidious that his words have worked their way as deep inside my body, but of course it makes sense. Ultimately, I got what I wanted. He hit me, and I felt relieved. Did he hate you? Did he hate you, Caitlin? No, Dad, he's an alcoholic, but he would never. What if he went to AA? He really loves you. Sometimes when people love each other, they say things that, Mom, there are some things you can't unsay. We can't protect our girls from the experiences that make them whole people. Boys go to war and girls go to bed, and sometimes girls go to bed with boys who have been to war. Haunting. It was absolutely haunting. Okay. Just uh, the way that you frame that. I, I see that and I hear that in a lot of your uh, talks um, and what you've talked about is the equivalency is so right about covering the basis there where, where you're comparing going to war and going to bed. It's so real that I've never honestly thought of it in that realm. I've never thought to make that comparison. It's so powerful. I mean, Thank I- you don't know how to respond right uh, to that because uh, I feel like I'm still yeah, processing I mean, words. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's a theme that I keep coming back to. And I, you know, part of it is, is circumstantial. You know, my father and I were the same age. We were both 17, right. When he volunteered for Vietnam and I put up my first escort ad. And so it's been fascinating for me to sort of bear witness to and to process the difference in reactions to those two things and to really sit with and, and look at the difference between how we as a culture respond to a woman exchanging sexual pleasure for money and a man 
volunteering to kill people for money. And I keep coming back to that and, and have new things to say about it. And a horse eye view goes into this a lot with a lot of historical context. It's 10,000 years of human history in, 70, in a 75 minute, you know, one woman show slash lecture slash stand-up special. This one is much funnier than Contagious was. Contagious, 2015, I was just a raw nerve. That play was so vulnerable as a stand-up comic. Every time I performed it, I had to lay down afterwards for like, like I was empty. Stand-up comedy filled me up, right? I feel like I would perform on stage and I would feel like I just did cocaine, man. Like I just like, I felt like a god and I could go and do things afterwards. But after performing Contagious, I felt like a husk person. It's a really different thing. You definitely, in Contagious, describe being a woman in America in such a way that I think goes beyond the vagina monologues and goes beyond a lot of different pieces that a lot of people don't want to recognize. Mm -hmm. Like going back to that comparison of being a cis man and volunteering to kill people for money and the level of respect that that gains in this right. society but then if you have a vagina and you're yeah. like i'm gonna go have sex for money people are like you can't do that that is wrong that is wrong right that is wrong and obviously and so, wrong like yeah like you say like it's obvious and then to have to come to terms with that career choice where people are actively telling you that you are wrong everything about you is wrong, your choices are wrong, you are going to hell, mm -hmm. while your same age counterparts are going to be trained with infantry and crossing borders, and that is seen as heroic. It's just, it's so much to handle. It's, it's a lot, and, it's, and what I found so fascinating, like, with a little bit of distance and sort of in retrospect is everything that people say prostitution does to a woman's psyche, right? You're isolated, you're full of shame, you have PTSD, you can never connect to people again. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen up close is actually true of soldiers that like all of the things that people told me were going to be like a long-term side effect of having sold sex for money. I'm watching play out in yeah. in my father's undiagnosed, untreated, unacknowledged PTSD. Mm -hmm. And we don't have language for that as a culture, but we would like to pretend that sex is this corrupting influence. And it, it, there's a line from that show, it's sort of like a main thesis of a lot of my work is that like we have to let go of this lie that little boys go out in the world and experience hardship and become better men and that little girls go out into the world and experience hardship and become diminished or tarnished or ruined in some way. Yeah. And as a culture, we are doing this. And when women specifically go out and go into sex work and they start doing this, and I would almost say inevitably, even with the best practices, occasionally harm is done. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, you chose this. But then yep. when men in the military go out and they get hurt and they come home and people are like, oh, this happened to you. You deserve mm -hmm. all the love and compassion and healing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like soldiers don't have it so great either. 
we don't know. Really I agree. Have, I agree. Like, yeah, we do not really actually. And like, I would say, especially, well, not, it's just different. Like, yeah, we used to have a war propaganda machine that's sort of like World War One and World War Two. I think are really good examples of this, where we like sold a message of heroic war to the country, and the country was like, "You're heroes." And then it's like the lived experience of being a soldier in World War One or World War Two is like trench warfare. It's just being yeah. in like a wet hole, scared out of your shit. Like, but you're surrounded by posters of like strong Popeyes man that are like blah yeah. blah blah blah. But it, so it's it's a weird dichotomy of like experience versus reality. And then Vietnam, mm-hmm. you know, the reality was brought home to people's living rooms, and people like couldn't handle it, you know. And that's yeah. like baby killer, right? Like my father was called a baby killer, like in the airport when he like first came back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And like what my father says is like when he signed up for the military, it was sort of before the Vietnam expose, if that makes sense. So like the role of soldier is like, you ask us to do unspeakable things for you. And the deal is that you're not supposed to talk about it. And Vietnam was a violation of that deal, right? Yeah. Because we talked about it. Flipping the gender roles when it mm-hmm. comes to women who opt to join um, the ranks of military or men who decide to get into sex work. Yep. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? 100%. I mean, like, sex workers and soldiers have always been all kinds of people, right? Like, that's always been true. And also, just like, you know, sex workers and soldiers also exist in, like, very gendered roles um, across cultures. You know, one of the original goddesses, right, where temple prostitution is invented, one of the oldest fertility mothers, Ishtar, is the goddess of love and war, right? And I think that there is a relationship between soldiers and sex workers that is ancient, uh, between sex and life and death. And I think the sort of like life-death-life cycle that governs every living thing is sort of contained in both the birth ritual and like also the death ritual, which I think is something that like sex workers have always had um, our literal and proverbial fingers in, you know, the, the temples of Ishtar are also where information about fertility, information about birth control and abortion and contraception is held. And it's also where, you know, early medicinal knowledge is held and hospice and doula work of like bringing people in and helping ease people out of this world is work that has been historically done by temple priestesses and sex workers often step into those roles in a variety of different contexts. And I think recognizing the ancient ritual that is just older and and goes way deeper than any of the institutions that we've built in the last hundred or a thousand years, you know? And in that way, I feel like my father and I are sort of like cosmically connected, that we made like sort of like weirdly mirrored choices, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. I wanted to play a quick clip from your most uh, recent work of which you are developing mm-hmm. currently called mm-hmm. Whore's Eye View. This was down in Nashville? Yeah, this was in Nashville. Becoming an escort felt mystical. Uh, I tapped into something, uh, something I brushed up against in bed and on stage and also on mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> sex is a time traveler. Even though I was a young woman, a teenager, uh, yes, I was able to channel what I now recognize to be an ancient, wise, healer energy in my sessions. I channeled the goddesses of old through my escort character to be powerful and present during my sessions. And now, in bed with my husband, I get to be a snotty little brat because that is how life works. (laughs) 
I came to sex as a theater kid, and I created my escort character with the tools that I had as an actress. Uh, I gave her a name and a backstory and a posture and a breath and channeled an older woman's wisdom. And through her, I established dominance with men. She knew how to set and negotiate boundaries. I was a professional wearing my escort character like a shield, and she protected me. I also looked like a grown-ass woman. At 17 and 3 quarters years old, I was not advertising myself as barely legal, even though I was not legal. Um, I instead, I pretended that I was a 22-year-old communications major because that was uh, the biggest thing I could come up with, and now I work in communications because life is a circle. Uh, yeah. When I was using message boards to schedule and screen clients at 17 and 18 years old, I encountered uh, a consent-forward culture. Uh, in fact, I've never experienced such a consent-forward culture until I went to sex parties a decade later and was like, oh, that's what this is. Um, I learned by reading the, um, the FAQ section, right, the Frequently Asked Questions uh, part of this message board, how um, to screen my clients, right? That I was to ask for their real name and make sure to check their ID at the door and ask for two other references or other people they'd seen and presumably not robbed or killed or upset in some way. <laughs> I also, uh, oh yeah, that's fine, that was better. <laughs> okay, I'll read you this joke, but I think it's gonna get cut. So, uh, I learned that the best reference is I don't remember him, that's the best, uh, or he tips well, uh, but anything that starts with a sharp inhalation of breath, that's like, something you have to know, is like always a red flag. Even, it doesn't matter, don't stop listening to the words, just, it's not worth it. Are you gonna keep that part, you think? Probably, I don't think so. That may, I mean, maybe. It's, it, it, that piece is in development. That was, so I developed it in Nashville and we were scheduled to start doing readings at Zinc Bar in March. I've been like gearing up to get ready to start really developing that piece and it's just been on hold since March. But as soon as we're able to workshop things like yeah. in person again, I will be doing readings. And if you live in New York and you want to be invited to those, then please get on my email list at theoldestprofessionpodcast.com because that so, will be happening in the future. Yeah, we want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, the Oldest Profession yeah. Prod Podcast, um, which is phenomenal. Uh, I've only gotten a chance to listen to a couple episodes, but I really, I have to say, it really, it's something to say that you really kind of cover bases uh, of all women in history from Victoria Woodhull in your most recent episodes, uh, the three-parter, uh, which yep. I have not gotten to dig into. Uh, yeah, that's, Lou... that's how we're doing things from now on. It's like it's, gotcha. we're, we're doing a three-parter every month. So Yeah, uh, you had one on Lou yeah. Graham last year and another one on Cardi B. Um, Cardi B, of course, on the newer. And then Lou Graham, I believe, was uh, what, like uh, 18, 19, 19th century, right? 18, yeah, 1890s in Seattle. She actually just, funded the public school system in Seattle. It's at just the, so fascinating. At the beginning. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Like we've always been here. Been yeah. you know So if people wanted to support that they can go to uh, a Patreon. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you want to support the production company if you want like exclusive merch and access to like behind the scenes bonus content then support us on Patreon at patreon.com/oldpro or of course you can check out the website but you can also make a tax deductible donation to the oldest profession podcast because we are 
a fiscally sponsored project. And so you don't get like, there's no special bonus. There's no content or sweatshirt or swag with that. But if you just want to support like the mission of the show and, and think that the work that we're doing is important, you can donate. You're a fantastic woman, Caitlin. Caitlin Bailey, K-A-Y-T-L-I-N Bailey, spelled as it should, dot com for all relevant projects and information. Right? I mean, yeah. how, how else would Bailey yeah. be spelled? I don't know. No, no, you're right. It's just like, yes, my my first name is spelled wrong. You are you are correct in your assessment. My parents my- are trying to be creative. They're fucking and it's fine. But there's yeah, no, there's a weird Y in there. It's not intuitive. So Caitlin spelled all fucked up and then Bailey just how it should be. Your parents were in twenty twelve before anybody else was. I know. They didn't they didn't even realize how Googleable they were making me. It was just the result of a shitty compromise. My father wanted a traditional Irish name. And my mom wanted me to be named after this woman, Kay, her, her like great aunt or something. Oh. And so they just fudged it and they made Kay. Yeah. So the extrapolated from there. You are a, a terrific, terrific human. Uh, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and honest and sharing uh, all that you shared this hour with us on Lost and Rewound. It really is a gift to bring artists on and ask them to look, like really look at their work. So thank you very much for for doing this. This This is great. Be sure to stick around for... <laughs> no, we're, we're done with that. Be sure to stick around for more fantastic programming today on Radio Free Brooklyn. Starting at 5 p.m., there will be live programming all night long. That's starting with the Daily Echo at 5. Then, Here and Now with Rachel C. at 7, followed by Frequency Theory at 8 with the Big Cheese Double T. That is Tom Tenney followed by Middle School Happy Hour at 10 and Bands BK from 11 to midnight, which I'm pretty sure thus begins Mischief Night. Our friends at Middle School Happy Hour, Emily and Jamie, actually were on our show earlier this year, and uh, you can hear that episode and more on our main hub at Radio Free Brooklyn's website. That is radiofreebrooklyn.org slash L-A-R. We're also up on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Our thanks again to Caitlin Bailey for such a brilliant episode this week. And of course, my thanks to Rachel Teichman for bringing the flaming, as always. This has been episode 231 of Lost and Rewound. For Radio Free Brooklyn this week, from The Lair, this is Elon Dansker signing off. Happy Halloween. Hopefully we'll see you next week.
I've definitely gone through phases in my life where I'm craving it, where it's like, I don't know if it's like a chakra energy thing or like, <laughs> some, like there's just something happening where it's like, you like want a, a dick in your butt and like nothing else will do. That only happens like every couple of years. So it's not like an every weekend kind of thing. For sure. 100% you need a dick in your butt sometimes. Yep. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like once every two or three years, right? You know, it's like the, yeah, the per- like on a weird moon night. You know, yeah. it's like an itch you cannot scratch. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 It, it haunts you. It howls at you. It haunts you. It howls at you. Sometimes you just need a dick in your butt. Sometimes. Yep. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yep. Yeah.